we are all so invested in this program and everybody who's part of this program, they just, they care so much about this species of snail and we all just want to see it be successful. So I know from my personal standpoint, if I just bred abalone, white abalone for the program for the next 10 years, I would be so happy to do that. I just, you know, you want to be part of the program that helps bring these animals back from extinction. So I know that like AOP, Aquarium of the Pacific, we're all in. We're always going to be part of this program. This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. This podcast is sponsored by Project Dragonfly a master's degree program offered by Miami University dedicated to ecological and social change. Project Dragonfly offers a part-time master's of arts in biology degree focused on conservation or a master's of arts in teaching for teachers. The program is designed for working professionals and can be completed from anywhere in the United States. Learn more at projectdragonfly.miamioh.edu. On this episode of Conservation Conversations, we talked to Lauren Samarov of the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California, about their programs to conserve white abalone. Lauren shares so many stories of working on recovering this important marine snail population in Southern California. Please enjoy our conversation with Lauren. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. If you don't mind introducing yourself, uh, please tell us who you are and what you do at the aquarium. Sure. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, my name is Lauren Samarov. I'm a senior aquarist at the Aquarium of the Pacific, and one of my main focuses is white abalone. So I am the white abalone aquarist. Um, I take care of our broodstock, which we use to uh, spawn and create more white abalone. Um, I take care of the embryos until they settle, and then we grow them out to a certain size. Once they are an appropriate size, we tag them and outplant them into the ocean. And then we go back and do survey dives. So we go back and check on the abalone that we release. So I get to help out with that as well. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate uh, in terms of what you do for your job, but also your program in general. Yeah. Um, but to kind of start with the basics, let's talk about the white abalone. Um, what is an abalone? How would you describe an abalone? Sure. So an abalone is a marine snail. Uh, it's one of the larger ones, especially in California. Um, they've been extremely important in California for uh, cultural reasons, as well as um, commercial uh, reasons and White abalone were actually the first marine invertebrate to be listed as endangered. Um, so back in the early 1900s, people started harvesting abalone. Um, well, they were doing it before that, but on a commercial scale, people started har harvesting abalone. And the white abalone is apparently the most tender and delicious of all of the abalone. So it was the most sought after one. Um, and the population just got completely decimated by commercial diving and um, um, taking them from the ocean for food. And 
they have a very slow life cycle. So it takes them a long time to get to a size where they can reproduce. And they're also broadcast spawners. So if you are ready to spawn, you have to have another abalone near you. And it got to a point where white abalone weren't close enough to each other, even if they were still out in the wild to where when they released their gametes, the odds of them mixing with the opposite were extremely low. Um, so that's one of the reasons why it got put on the endangered list and we started this program. The broadcast breeding strategy, when I learned about it the first time, probably high school, early in college, again, that just blows my mind. Just the fact that things, one, okay, you can think about it like, yeah, that's how they reproduce. But the fact that they've been here for so long and that it works and it has worked for so long, that is so crazy to me. And so I'm sure that kind of affects the um, reproduction success of your program. So um, I guess the, all that is kind of leading into what is it that you guys actually do to help these abalone when they're in uh, on site? Not Sorry, like not... I always get these backwards, ex situ and in situ. So like when you're at the aquarium. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, we play a lot of different roles with the program. Um, I think our biggest role is just taking care of our broodstock animals. Those are the animals that we spawn. So males and females, they'll release either eggs or sperm. And it's part of our job to make sure that their gametes are really ripe um, when it comes time to spawn. So making sure that we are feeding our animals really, really well, that's probably the biggest thing that we do is making sure that our broodstock animals are really healthy and they are going to want to spawn when we um, have spawning days. Um, outside of that, um, like I said, we help all the other institutions in Southern California when there's spawning going on. We usually all do it at the same time so that if one institution gets only males to spawn and another institution only gets females, we can share the gametes between each other because that happens a lot when we spawn sometimes is we'll only get males or we'll only get females. So um, there's a big network of partners in California, specific, more specifically in Southern California. Um, the main um, lab or entity that oversees the white abalone program is actually up in UC Davis where white abalone are not, that's not their natural range. Um, so we have a ton of partners down in Southern California that basically f follow the kind of guidelines and everything for um, bodega. But um, when we do spawns, which we do a couple every year, um, then we're raising embryos into larvae and getting ready to settle the larvae and they need certain cues and all of these things. So um, we'll settle those guys in um, our settling troughs and then we grow them up to um, 25 millimeters, which is pretty small still. Um, and then we will tag them and then um, we will go out and release them on the site. So we are involved in those uh, parts of the program as well. So we'll go out on the boat when we're releasing abalone. And then, like I said before, with our um, survey dives, uh, we'll go out and survey areas where we had released them to check on them and see how uh, we're doing. So AOP is really lucky in the fact that it gets to do every aspect of the program, which is really awesome. Not all of the partners don't get to do every single 
aspect of the program and we do. So I feel really fortunate that I'm able to see every step of uh, the program and be involved in every step along the way. Yeah, it sounds like a really, really cool collaboration that you guys are a part of. And it's showing some actual, you know, on the ground uh, results. So um, real quick step back, just in case anyone doesn't know, um, including myself, what is a gamete? (laughs) Gametes are either eggs or sperm. So when we, um, we do annual assessments on our abalone, um, and sometimes we, we coordinate those with spawning dates. So we'll actually remove the abalone, we will look at the gametes, and then we'll score it. We'll give it a one through three rating or a zero through three rating. Zero is we literally cannot see either eggs or sperm where the gametes are located in the abalone, and a three is like, they are so big and ready to go like super swollen and the way you tell males and females apart is it takes a very um studied eye to tell the difference um but males and females look slightly different um but obviously the only way that you know for sure whether it has uh eggs or sperm is by spawning those animals so long story short gametes are just eggs and sperm I say that because the world of invertebrates is completely foreign to me and I'll never understand it. Um, and that was going to be one of my questions is, is can you tell if they're male or female very, very young? Um, because I know, I think it's uh, the giant limpet They're They start off as males, but then when they hit, I think it's like 40 millimeters, then they become female, which how does that, I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that we know, um, for abalone, but it is actually much easier to sex younger abalone. Usually when they're smaller, um, the gametes are just, they're just more apparent. When they get bigger, it kind of gets more into like the mantle of the abalone. And sometimes it's hard to see unless they have like a ton of them, but the little ones, because they're so small, it's really easy to tell those apart. So when we're trying to teach someone how to sex abalone, we usually try to look at the smaller ones just because they're easier to see. So you have this program where you have your your broodstock, you breed them, you do all the little details or all the confusing invertebrate stuff that I don't understand. Um, and then you have, um, I don't even know, a bunch of white abalone. They're at least 25 millimeters in length. And then you take a boat and you drive out to their habitat and then you put them in the, in the, in the site, right? Yeah. There, there's a little more complicated than, than that, but that is, yes, that is the gist. <laughs> so what is like, where, when you go out there, where, like, I obviously not in specific locations, I don't want to share where those are, but like, what's the habitat type there? Like, are they like, uh, you know, hundred meters down? Are they, you know, you know, right on the, the seashore? Like, where are you actually um, putting these? Yeah, so white abalone, they are the deepest uh, species of abalone. So, but you can find them in as shallow as like 15 feet of water. But kind of the sweet spot is like 60 to 80 feet. That seems to be the depth that they really like. So a lot of the sites that we use are right around there. Like depending on the tide, you're 70 feet, maybe 80 feet if it's like really high tide. 
Um, but yeah, we outplant them at yeah secret sites. Um, we have right now we only have four, and we're always looking to expand um, our sites. So I know there's kind of talk right now of maybe adding one. Um, off the backside of Catalina Island, which would be amazing because historically that was a really big cache for white abalone. They were all over there. Um, and then obviously we kind of decimated the population, but we're always looking for new sites because we only have four. There's no way we're going to bring back these animals from the brink of extinction if we only have four sites. Okay. And I apologize. I'm kind of bouncing around here, but... Um... The abalone themselves, they you, you mentioned that their crash. Um, what exactly caused that crash and about when was that? So I need to go back and look at the exact dates, but um, harvesting abalone started in the early 1900s. Um, and then once scuba diving, commercial scuba diving became a thing, that is when we just completely wiped out the populations. And like I was saying, um, abalone tend to hang out together. So when they broadcast spawn, that's like, it's great. Like I have 40 abalone right here. But when you're going through and taking out hundreds, thousands of abalone at a time, all of a sudden you're spawning buddy you don't have one anymore. So because they were harvesting them uh, commercially through diving, when diving first became, you know, accessible for fisheries and things like that, that's when we really started to have issues. Um, we put some regulations into place that was like, you cannot collect abalone diving on scuba anymore for commercial reasons. Um, and then more and more restrictions got put on top of that as time went on. The program that you guys are a part of, um, how, when did that start? How long, how long ago did everyone kind of come together to like, you know, hey, let's team up and let's recover these abalones? It, I, I don't know the exact date, but it came pretty quickly after they were listed as endangered. Because at that point, um, when you have an animal that's listed as endangered, you can start recovery programs. So... Um, different organizations started working on that. NOAA was involved. California Fish and Wildlife was involved. Um, UC Davis is the head of the White Abalone Program. Um, but yeah, partners kind of came later. It's They had to kind of figure out um, how they're going to keep, where they're going to get these abalone from. They had to go and get, you know, a few wild abalone, spawn those guys, making sure they know what to do and all of that. Um, and we actually got a lot of help from um, commercial abalone farms. So red abalone is commercially farmed in California. It's a very important um, uh, part of our economy. And they have helped us out so much with uh, spawning methods and they hold white abalone for us. And it's, it's a very... Um, communal relationship that we have with them because obviously they're growing and uh, selling abalone for food, but they're also sharing their knowledge and helping us out with these spawns as well. That's really good to hear. That's, I mean, that's refreshing, you know, yeah. <laughs> usually you kind of, you know, the, the simplistic view is, you know, it's us against them. The fact that everyone's working together is, is really cool. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it, abalone has been such a important 
part of California for going back to the indigenous people and then up through, you know, the 1940s and 50s, it was a huge food source for people. Like people used to just go out and collect abalone to eat, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. And then once the commercial farmers started getting a hold of them and we were shipping them all over the world, all of a sudden, a lot of people, they didn't have that food source anymore. When you said about the releases, you you tag them. So what does that what does that actually look like with the tagging? And then when when you go back to monitor those release sites, like what is it you're looking for? And like I guess what are some of the kind of results you've seen so far? Sure. So um, we use something called Floy tags, and we will actually glue them to the shell. They're these tiny little, you know, two or three centimeter long tags. They're a certain color, and they have a number written on them. So usually um, we keep track of all of our populations of abalone. We call them cohorts. So the cohort will have a family name. Uh, we, we use pretty pretty funny ones. Like there's um, a Fozzie uh, group. We have like a Squidward group. We have, we just name the families. And each year, each name is like a different group of names but so we'll have the family name we'll have the day that it was spawned and then we'll also have the information of where the parents are from so all of that is related to that tag that we put on them so it'll be a certain color for you know a certain cohort and then that individual has a number so we'll tag the abalone with that in some cases we double tag because tags fall off and then recently, we've also been putting um, some uh, mica um, colored glue on the shell as like a dab. So let's say they lose both of their tags, but they have this purple dot on their shell. We know that it's that same cohort. Um, so all of our abalone in the program will eventually be tagged. All of our broodstock is tagged, obviously, so we can know the lineages of those animals so that we aren't breeding, you know, brothers and sisters together. Um, and then when they're ready for outplant, they'll get a tag as well. When you release them and you have, and you, you know, everything you just mentioned about releasing them and setting them in place. Um, and when you go back to monitor, how are you able to tell, say if they're, if they're successful in mating and breeding, I should say, um, how are you able to tell, whether that the progeny come from two released or are there already some existing in the sites that you put them in or are they just completely barren when you put the um, uh, abalone out there? So when we release the abalone, we've had a number of different kind of iterations of something that was called a safe for a while. Um, there was something called a BART for a while and they were all four little four-letter acronyms that were basically like th these little abalone cages that we would fill the cages with all of the baby abalone. We would stuff it full of algae for them to eat. Um, and then we'd go and place it at the site. And then we'd come back like a week later, open up the, the little cage, put more algae in, close it back up. And then we'd get to a section where we started, it was called vaulting, where you just lift it up a tiny bit 
so that if the abalone want to leave, they can and go out into the natural uh, surroundings. And then eventually we completely remove the the cages um, from the site once all the abalone have left. And after that point, then we're going back to look for either empty shells, which we do find from time to time. Um, and then we're also looking under rocks and things like that. Uh, we have two different types of surveys that we do. We have one that we call a non-invasive survey where you're literally just looking around. You don't touch any rocks. You don't move anything. You're just trying to see if you can see any abalone. Um, and then we have invasive surveys where we are flipping rocks over, looking underneath, because abalone like to hide in little cracks and crevices. So if you're just looking and not moving anything, you might not see any, but there might actually be a lot of abalone there. And as for the sites, a lot of the sites have either been historic white abalone areas, um, or we've actually seen wild white abalones at those sites, which is really exciting because that means that those are those wild genes can then mix with our animals that are, you know, F1 or F2 um, uh, groups of animals. So, Lauren, I'm just curious, uh, context of abalones in California. Um, I, I know the big red ones, right? They're huge, huge abalone shells. Um but I'm also thinking like, I think it's the white ones that are really small, or maybe those are the black ones, I can't remember. Just could you tell us a little bit more about the different kinds of species, how many there are in California, and just um, just give us some context about abalone. Sure, yeah. So we have seven species off the coast of California. Um, two of those are on the endangered species list. So white abalone and black abalone. Black abalone are, they're similar size to whites. Um, maximum size for whites is usually nine inches or so. So they're not the biggest. Um, reds are our biggest species. Those can get up to 12 inches. So they're, they're very, very large. Um, but we also have green abalone. Um, we have pink abalone. And then we have uh, pinto abalone and also flat abalone. So we have those guys, the pinto and the flat, they only get to be about seven inches. So those guys are a little bit smaller. Um, and most of these guys, uh, the flat abalone and the pinto abalone, they their range is all the way up in like Oregon and Washington, all the way down to Baja, California. Um, so some of the other species have a little more uh, limited range, like white abalone, uh, Point Conception, down to Baja, California. That's their range. Um, the black abalone, those guys are are really intertidal uh, ab abalone. They basically only go to like 20 feet. So that's another reason that those guys are really endangered is because they were so easily accessible to people and fisheries that you could just go and tide pool and grab hundreds of abalone. Um, so they are also on the endangered species list. Um, reds, red abalone are really important for uh, commercial fisheries. So when you buy abalone off of a menu in California, you are buying a red abalone. And the reason that we, those are the ones that are chosen is because 
they get really big. Um, usually you wait, it takes about three years to get red abalone to market size. So there's a lot of time and effort that goes into getting these guys to market size. Um, and then the greens and the pinks, um, they're both kind of point conception down to uh, Baja. Um, the greens and the pinks you see a lot out at Catalina. I've only seen a handful of live abalone in the wild, and they're almost always greens or pinks where I'm diving. Where were where you guys want to take this? You know, you as the aquarium, but the whole um, cohort, not cohort, um, the collaborative group that you guys have for the white abalone, what, what's, what are the next steps? You know, you said you have these four top secret area 51 sites that you put these abalone in. Um, but you know, what are the, the next steps and what are the goals of this program? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what we have kind of discovered and learned in the last, gosh, 24 years that this program has been going and since they got listed as endangered um, we are realizing that in order to bring these animals populations back up we need to be working on a commercial level so we need to have people that are literally just spawning abalone all the time raising babies all of these things so we need a lot more people in the program. We need more funding. Uh, we need more space. We basically need to be running a commercial sized abalone far farm in order to bring these animals back. So we have a very high mountain to climb, but we are all so invested in this program and everybody who's part of this program, they just, they care so much about this species of snail and we all just want to see it be successful. So I know from my personal standpoint, if I just bred abalone, white abalone for the program for the next 10 years, I would be so happy to do that. I just, you know, you want to be part of, the program that helps bring these animals back from extinction. So I know that like AOP, Aquarium of the Pacific, we're all in. We're always going to be part of this program. It's just a matter of can we put more effort into that? Can we get more staff that are just focused on helping out with the white abalone program? Um, so there's a lot of hurdles ahead of us, but we that's that's basically the direction that we're going is we understand at this point that if we want this to work, it's got to be on a much bigger level than what we're doing right now. Did you, did you grow up, you know, when you were seven years old, you're like, I've, I'm going to spend my life working for white, working with, with white abalone. I got to recover this species. And I know that's not the case, but you know, <laughs> what is it that got you into this field that makes you, made you um, want to stick with it and uh, yeah, recover these species? Yeah. If someone had told me when I was like 12 years old that I would be working with an endangered marine snail, I would have been like, that sounds like really weird, <laughs> but I, I feel so lucky that I kind of, I kind of fell into the abalone program, but growing up, I grew up in Southern California. So the ocean was part of my life 
all the time. I, I've always lived near the ocean. I've always had a huge connection to it. Um, it wasn't until later in life that I realized that I really wanted to work with marine animals. Um, I had originally wanted to go into vet medicine um, and be a veterinarian, but life just kind of took me a different way. And I kind of stumbled into this field a little bit. Um, I got an internship at Aquarium of the Pacific um, straight out of college. And it was just like, for some reason, it had never dawned upon me that you could be a marine biologist at an aquarium. Like, I just don't know why that never seemed like a job, but I was like, wow, this is awesome. And I just fell in love with this field. And then as time went on, you know, you get to work with so many different types of animals. And I grew to kind of have a soft spot for invertebrates. I mean, fish are great, but inverts are just like so cool and so unique. And there's so many different species like... I, I am an invert nerd. I love it so much. So the fact that I was placed uh, in this abalone program by Aquarium of the Pacific, I just feel so lucky because it's, it's so great. It's so rewarding. It's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my career. And like I said, I could keep doing this for another 10 or 20 years and I would be completely happy do it like working with these these snails for the rest of my life <laughs> mindset behind that has to be some sort of optimistic you know like hey this species is is not doing so well but we have to recover we need to do something so uh, in your day-to-day -day life or in you know maybe not day-to-day -day, but month to month or year to year how does that uh idea you know factor into your life philosophy, I guess. <laughs> it's an interesting question. Um, I kind of think for the program, even though we have been doing this for over 20 years, we are still learning things all the time. And having this experience is just, it, it reminds me that no matter how long you've been doing something, you can always learn more and improve on what you're doing. And that's basically what we're doing in this program is we've spent the last 20 years learning so much and really getting this down to a science to where we know that like, hey, when we breed these animals, like we know we're gonna get this many million embryos. And like, that is kind of where we're at now where it's like, when we spawn, we know we're gonna get gametes. We know we're gonna get embryos and we're getting better and better at it. So it kind of, I guess in that way, um, for my life philosophy is you're never gonna know everything and you're always gonna be continuously learning. And that's kind of one of the great things about working in this field is you're always discovering new things and improving on skills that you already have. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for your time. Uh, so excited to hear about your project and, you know, good luck with everything. And, uh, we wish you only the best for you and the white abalone. Thank you guys so much. It was so nice to see you guys and meet you, uh, Taylor. Thank you so much to Lauren for talking to us all about what AOP is doing to help the white abalone and so much more. 
please either visit AOP when you're in town or consider donating to help them recover local wildlife and habitats. Visit them at www.aquariumofpacific.org to see how you can help. Hosts and producers are Austin and Taylor Parker. Producer is Madeline Walden. Music was provided by A Picture Book Studios. Please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe if you want to help. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.